All right, good morning. So this is our third week in our Sounding Joy Part 2 series, where we're listening closely to the songs of Christmas and reflecting on their meaning and significance. And uh, the song that we're doing this morning, as Keith said earlier, and as you just heard, is God Rest Ye Merry Gentlemen. Sometimes um, it's titled God Rest You, Merry Gentlemen, uh, which is definitely a classic. It goes way back. I remember uh, two years ago, I wanted to do this one when we did Sounding, Sounding Joy Part 1. But I gave up because I could not find a standard definitive version of God Rest You Merry Gentlemen. Um, some verses had, uh, or some versions had verses that other ones didn't. I found that there are about eight verses that appear in various versions. But there are variations on all eight of those verses, and they appear in different orders and different variations of the orders in different versions. And so I just kind of threw up my hands and gave up because I was like, I don't even know for sure what I would be talking about. What is the standard definition uh, of this song? And the biggest reason for that inconsistency is because God Rest You Merry Gentlemen is really old. Um, there's no definitive comp composition or composer of God Rest Ye Merry Gentlemen. Uh, we subscribe to a service called Song Select that a lot of churches use, which is a database of, of songs, uh, copyrighted songs that churches can use in their services. And if you look up God Rest Ye Merry Gentlemen, it just mysteriously says under composer, unknown. Nobody knows. The earliest confirmed version of the lyrics of this song that I found was from the 1650s, so about 370 years ago. And it was found in a handwritten manuscript of a book of poems. And the book of poems was associated with a, a group of Catholic families in the parish of and I'm not making this up, hopefully I can say this correctly, Wooten Wawen of Warwickshire, <laughs> which is in central England. And uh, this is the first verse of this poem from the 1650s manuscript. Sit, yo merry gentlemen, let nothing you dismay, for Jesus Christ is born. To save our souls from Satan's power, when as we run astray, O tidings of comfort and joy. To save our souls from Satan, when we, as we run away, O tidings of comfort and joy. Now, of course, that's not exactly the first verse of God Rest You Merry Gentlemen. I don't know exactly what sitio means, but I assume it means something like God Rest Ye Merry. Um, but clearly, this is an early version of what came to be known as God Rest Ye Merry Gentlemen. And remember how I said that as I looked up various versions of this song uh, over the centuries, I was frustrated because there's different combinations of verses, but I said that there are eight possible verses. Well, guess what? This 1650s manuscript contains early versions of all eight of those verses. Um, 
And of course, they're all a little bit different from what we know, but it's clearly the seed version is there. For example, the, the second uh, verse in the poem says, In Bethlehem, sweet jury, this blessed babe was found. Uh, and of course, that sounds a lot like what we often sing in our uh, one verse of the song, In Bethlehem in Israel, this blessed babe was born. So we have evidence that some form of the lyrics to this song goes back for a very long time, at least 370 years. So what about the music? Well, the earliest proof I found of the combination of this music with these lyrics is from the mid-1700s. A composer named James Nares wrote down the words and music to this song, so it's handwritten, and it's, he wrote it under the title, The Old Christmas Carol. So even in the 1750s, this combination was considered old. So the song is old, and that's probably obvious just from that opening line, right? God rest ye merry gentlemen. Have you guys ever thought about that line at all? A comma must belong in there somewhere, right? But... But where? Are we talking to God? Are we talking to the gentlemen? Are the gentlemen merry? Or are we telling them to be merry? Or are we concerned because they're a little too merry and they need to give it a rest? <laughs> like, what is going on here? <laughs> and I genuinely wasn't sure myself uh, when I started to look into the song. Well, there is a comma that belongs there, and it belongs between Mary and gentlemen. A lot of people hear this and they think it's, God rest ye, Mary gentlemen, but it's, God rest ye, Mary gentlemen. So the gentlemen are the ones being addressed, and that's probably obvious from the second line, let nothing you dismay. God's not the one who needs to be told, don't be dismayed, right? It's people. So clearly the, uh, the audience is the gentleman. And I know the fact that it's exclusively gentlemen that are being addressed is archaic. Um, I, actually, I wouldn't say that the song intends to only address gentlemen. It's a, kind of like when we refer to humanity as mankind. Um, clearly this is for everybody. And I know the language is kind of archaic. That's that's unfortunate. If it helps at all, you can think of gentlemen as like the ancient, not ancient, but the 17th century version of you guys, right? You know, if we talk to a crowd of mixed gender and we say, hey, all you guys, you know, people don't assume we're only talking about the men. Uh, but that still leaves us with the question, what are the gentlemen being told to do? Right? God rest ye merry. What does that mean? Well, the word rest is being used there in a way that we don't use it today. It means something like keep you. So what this is saying is something like, may God keep you happy, all you guys. <laughs> the expression, God rest you merry, uh, it actually goes all the way back to 1534, at least according to the Oxford English Dictionary. 
So when we sing these words, we are singing a old-fashioned 500-plus-year-old blessing. God keep you happy. All of you. God give you peace. God give you joy. God rest you merry. Do you feel merry this time of year? I know that for a lot of people, all this focus on being happy and being merry actually has a, a reverse effect this time of year. You know, Christmas can be really the hardest time of the year for some people. It's a time when we can feel the absence of loved ones more acutely. If you have a loved one that's passed away, you tend to feel that more at Christmas. Uh, if you have a loved one who is deployed or far away and you can't be with them, uh, it can be a lot harder at Christmas. If you have a loved one that for some reason you've become estranged from, Christmas can really, really hurt. And, and then there's the fact that you know, some of us have really positive memories of Christmas, but then our present experience never seems to live up to those, those memories from the past. And so Christmas can leave us feeling the opposite of merry, depressed. And then, of course, there's the added stress of getting all the gifts and making sure that everything seems perfect and nothing ever is perfect, right? Uh, so, so Christmas... Ironically, it's a time when a lot of people don't feel so merry. But what I want us to notice is that God resting merry gentlemen doesn't just tell us to be merry, right? It tells us why we should be merry. And it's not because life is easy or because everyone we love is still with us to celebrate around the tree. Uh, it's, uh, it's not because Santa's on his way and we got plenty of figgy pudding. If those were the reasons, then I don't think this song would have caught on in 18th century London. Uh, did you guys know that life expectancy, when you were born, in the late 1700s in London, was 23? And, you know, that's... I don't want you to get the wrong impression. That doesn't mean that once you reach 23, people just expect it. Well, you're about done. Um, Plenty of people lived in their, into their 60s and 70s and even some people into their 80s. But the average was so low because so many people died as infants or as children. So you can imagine at Christmas how acutely that loss might be felt, right? And yet, they sang out in the London streets according to a Christmas carol, Scrooge, right? They sang out, God rest you merry gentlemen, let nothing you dismay. Be merry. Why? Because Christ our Savior was born on Christmas Day to save us all from Satan's power when we had gone astray. Two weeks ago we talked a bit about Satan's power which leads us astray. We looked at the story of Adam and Eve. And remember, Satan, who was represented by a, a serpent in that story, led Adam and Eve to violate God's only prohibition. Don't eat from that one tree. And you, you remember how the serpent convinced Eve to do that, right? By leading her to think 
that God was trying to withhold something good from her by leading her to think that God was selfish and that he didn't have her best interests in mind. And that's the same way that Satan's power works today. He leads us to think that God's not really good and to think that we can find what we really need and want in something or someone other than him, other than God. And then that deception leads us to sin. And sin leads to brokenness in our lives, brokenness in our relationships. And it leads to shame and hiding and darkness. And ultimately, it leads to death. But way back in that first story of the Bible, God makes a promise. We looked at that promise in detail two weeks ago. It's a strange, cryptic promise. But what God says is that the serpent, the devil, Satan, he's going to be humiliated. He's going to be defeated. His hold on humanity is going to be broken. And it's a little cryptic how that's going to happen. But we're told that one day, a descendant is going to be born, a seed of the woman, and that descendant is going to crush Satan, crush the devil. He's going to have to suffer in the process, but he will crush him. And of course, God Rest You Mary, gentlemen, is a song that celebrates that that descendant, that promised seed of the woman, born of a virgin, was born on the day we remember as Christmas. He came to save us all from Satan's power, to save us from that power that leads us to doubt the goodness of God, that power that leads us to shame and darkness and hiding and death. He didn't fall for Satan's deception, so he didn't sin. And because he didn't sin, death couldn't keep its hold on him. When he died, he came back. We might say that he defeated the three main sources of our greatest problems, right? The devil, sin, and death. So why should we rest Mary at Christmas? Even when there's so much wrong with the world. Because through Jesus we have hope that those three main sources of our biggest problems have been defeated by the one who was born. On Christmas, there is someone who is stronger than the serpent, someone who is stronger than our sin, someone who is stronger than death itself. And he tells us that if we follow and trust him, we will share in his victory over all those things. That's what should keep us merry. As God, rescue Mary, gentlemen, moves through its verses and recounts the story of Jesus' birth, it keeps returning to that refrain, O tidings of comfort and joy. O tidings of comfort and joy. Which, of course, is the same thing as God, rescue Mary. May you have peace. May you have joy. Because of the Savior's birth. Let's look at the Bible passage where these tidings of comfort and joy are first given. Um, you can open up to Luke chapter 2, starting in verse 8, if you want to follow along in your own Bible. Luke 2, verse 8. 
And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in clothes and lying in a manger. Suddenly, a great company of the heavenly hosts appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven, and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. If you're having trouble at all feeling the comfort and joy in these tidings, I'd like to point out a couple things that might not be obvious to us from our vantage point as 21st century Americans. <clears throat> when this announcement was made, it was made, of course, in a Jewish region of the Roman Empire. And the Roman Empire was ruled by the emperor, a guy known as Caesar Augustus, and what you might not know is that Caesar Augustus was celebrated as Savior and as Lord. And his reign was said to be a gospel, good news, that brought peace on earth. And so when the angels make this announcement to the shepherds, part of what the shepherds are hearing is Caesar isn't the true king. The true king of creation has been born. So there's a little bit of a subversive political element to what the angels were saying here. It uses the language of the empire and then says, actually, they aren't really the ones in charge. But there's a few things that are incredibly ironic about this royal announcement. Look at this. A savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the King, the Lord, the true Caesar. You will find him wrapped in clothes and lying in a manger. In other words, a king far greater than Caesar has been born. You will find him lying in a food trough for animals. What? You hear how ironic that is? That's like saying you will find the greatest in the position of the least. The king is not born into a state of privilege and power and wealth, but into the humblest of circumstances. This is upside down. It's backwards. And then there's also an irony to who is given this message first. You know, who are the people? that get the message first, besides Mary and Joseph, who are let in on what's going on here. Shepherds. Now, most of our associations with shepherds are really positive, right? Especially if we've grown up in the church, because we know that Jesus identifies as our shepherd. Um, but the reality was that at that time, shepherds were not respected. Um, the first time I heard that, I thought, is that really true? That sounds like something that somebody might just be making up just to, you know, make the story, I don't know, twisted in a certain way to get their point across. But I found that in multiple sources 
that for whatever reason, shepherds were just, they're kind of looked down on. And part of the reason might have been because the kind of work that they did prevented them from participating in religious activities, in, in ceremony, in going to the synagogue. Because when you have to always make sure that your sheep aren't wandering away, uh, you can't go into to town and participate in the church of the time, right? So that might be part of, of why shepherds were looked down on. They were, they were seen as kind of the opposite of holy men, just worldly guys. And yet, of all the people that the angels could have appeared to to make this royal announcement, they appear to lowly shepherds. God sends them to lowly shepherds. So what does all that tell us? Why should this give us comfort and joy? Because it tells us that the true king of creation, the one who came to crush the serpent, is not like the kings of the world. Right? The, the kings of the world, they're not usually humble. But he's humble. He values the lowly of society. He's even willing to appear dishonorable, right? He's obviously not concerned with wealth and luxury. That's not his priority. This is what the true king of creation is like, the true Caesar. Now you might ask, if Jesus really is the king of all creation, then why isn't that more obvious? If he really is the highest authority, the authority over all other authorities on earth, why doesn't everyone realize that? Why does it sometimes feel like Jesus isn't really the one in charge? Well, if any of us are asking that, I think we need to remember something that the Christmas story reveals, which is that appearances are not always what they seem. Appearances are not always what they seem. You know, if we did not know the Christmas story, we would never expect God to be born as a human being, laid in a feeding trough for animals, in some backwater town, right? We would expect God to manifest his power in some sort of blinding, incredible way, in some great city, right? In a, in a, in a temple, or in a palace. That's what we would expect. But the Christmas story tells us that the true king of creation doesn't work the way that we usually expect. He exercises his power in ways that seem strange to us. Because the true king of creation acts out of love. Acts of love are more powerful than, than anything. But on the surface, they can appear as weakness. Right? So the Christmas story should help us to see that even though there are times where it feels like Jesus isn't really the king, that Jesus isn't really in charge, that doesn't mean he isn't. He's still in charge. He's still at work. He's still more powerful than anything or anyone. But he often exercises his power in ways that we would not expect. He chooses to appear in the mangers of this world. In the humble places. 
in humble hearts. Unlike the kings of the world who are so, so often directed by love of money, love of power, desire for approval, Jesus, the true king, is directed by righteousness and love. And even though his reign might seem hidden right now, the promise is one day it will be very evident to all that he is the king. And he will reign in righteousness and love forever and ever. And that is what should keep us merry. Let's pray. Lord, I do pray that this Christmas we would experience joy. And not a a shallow, superficial joy, but the kind of joy that comes from realizing what this Christmas story reveals to us. That you are the true king of all, and that you are good. That you can be trusted. Lord, I pray that as we put our faith and our hope in you, Uh, that you would fill us with your tidings of comfort and joy. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.